0: History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them.
1: No hits, deep tracks only.
0: Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten.
1: We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories.
0: I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs.
1: This. This History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is the man who started and ended the Civil War.
0: As we often like to do on our podcast, I wanted to start today's episode by asking you a question. All right. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or um, I guess it, it, you could answer this by being in the right place at the right time, too. Just kind of like a yeah. situational circumstance, good or bad.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I'd say I've ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like, I haven't been through many, like, harrowing tragedies or anything like that <laughs> that, like, I would say that about. But I will say, like, as far as the right place at the right time, most of the jobs that I've had for like an extended period of time or things that I like really enjoyed doing. I ended up getting just because I was there and the owner or manager asked me if I wanted a job. So they weren't like things like pressed and where I work now at park Avenue, both of those were kind of like, I was just there as a customer and they like somebody quit or so they needed help and they knew me. (laughs) so they were like, Hey, do you want this job? Um, Outside of that, I mean, other than, like, random run-ins with, I don't know, it's kind of a a trivial thing, but, like, random run-ins with musicians or celebrities in, like, big cities, (laughs) but (laughs) I don't know if that's really a good enough thing to be, like, the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't have, like, a huge answer to that. I've definitely, my mind went to jobs, too, because I've had situations where, you know, I've been considered for a promotion or Mm -hmm. something like that just because I was the only one really available (laughs) if that makes (laughs) sense like the person who maybe had that job left the company or something and it was just like you're the one with the experience to do it so it's your job or I don't know even like when buying a house and I feel like anytime you are in the home buying mindset you're (laughs) kind of hoping to be in the right place at the right time but when we bought our house we we're looking at a house across the street and we made the appointment with our realtor to go look at this one house and then found out that the house across the street from it was also being put up for listing that same day. So we went to look at the house we intended to look at and it was disgusting inside and the basement was (laughs) soaking wet and it just had really bad, like you could tell bad structural issues. So we're like, okay, this wasn't what we hoped for. So we went across the street and we liked the house and it ended up being the one that we, bought and that we live in today so yeah it just kind of like things just sort of work out through good timing i guess yeah but no i don't have any that's like i don't know something bad happened because i was in a bad situation i guess yeah at least nothing that would make me famous or remembered through history no
1: (laughs) i i don't think i've done anything really of note enough to be remembered (laughs) more than like i don't know A decade past my death.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess to that point, do you have any desire to be famous? Like, do you want to be remembered years beyond your death?
1: It's funny that you asked that and that we're starting the episode like this, because I was just having a long conversation with somebody about this. Um, And I I used to, I think, like when I was younger and kind of more into music um, and the idea of being a musician... I definitely had a hunger for that, that I think a lot of people, especially in our culture, do because fame and popularity and success are values that are held highly, um, especially in, in the pop culture. age of
0: YouTube stars and TikTokers. People, yeah. want to be famous and remembered. Shocking. Well, that's how
1: it. That's actually how it came up. Is we were talking about how crazy it was, like if it's like somebody growing up in the '60s could imagine. Like even you and me, like I only have 500 Instagram followers. I'm not Insta famous, but nobody in the sixties could just show their cup of coffee to 500 people for no reason. (laughs) (laughs) And so we live in an age where like normal everyday people can achieve relative fame with pretty little effort at the same time. Um, And how that like mentally affects people and their perceptions of themselves and you know, their social circles. But I think I used to want the fame, but the more I've grown and thought about it and, like, gone through my 20s, I don't think I would have responded to fame well. Like, I don't even like to hear when a couple friends <laughs> are talking about me. So, the idea of having, like, the world know most of my business, like, I brought up Taylor Swift, because, like, I mean, I feel like she's a poster child for having people up in her romantic business. And it would stress me out to no no end to have people constantly remarking on what I did and how I could have done it better. Like, I already do that myself. I don't need, you know, magazines and journalists and all these fans doing it too.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were just talking before we pressed record about you having famous people come into your work now. and Not that you have, like, super famous people, but, I don't know, you have more opportunity to meet quote-unquote celebrities than maybe I do (laughs) through work. Yeah, But... I don't feel that I would even recognize a lot of celebrities if I did come into contact with them because I'm not super in tune with pop culture or whatever. I mean, I'd probably recognize some minor athletes over some even higher tier movie stars. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, like the possibility of being remembered today as a celebrity, quote unquote, is a lot easier than it was maybe 200 years ago, 150 years ago just through social media and, I don't know, trending viral things. like yeah. <laughs> Things just kind of stand out more than they weren't communicated as easily 150, 200 years ago. So let's say you did become rich and famous someday.
1: <laughs> I would take rich. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes fame comes with wealth, so that's kind of hand in hand. But how would you want to be remembered? I mean, would you rather be remembered because of something that you did or because of something that happened to you? So I guess trying to clarify that, say, let's go with rich. You became rich and that's what made you famous. Would you rather become famous for being rich because you worked really hard to become a CEO of a company or a millionaire through how hard you worked? Or would you rather just win the lottery and (laughs) happen to be rich that way?
1: Yeah definitely work for it i think i mean i i don't i can't think of a good like positive outcome of just happenstance creating wealth i feel like most of the people who win the lottery end up squandering it because <laughs> they didn't learn yeah, how but to you're manage smart like but. if you sure. know
0: how to manage your money wouldn't you rather just win the lottery <laughs> than have to I go, go through so. years of hard
1: work maybe i think the years of hard work would make me prouder that I had the money. It would make me. It would make the money worth more. And I think just interacting with other people, like if you're the type of person who's built a company or is the CEO of a company, and you do actually spend all the money or you lose all of it, you still have capital in the form of your experience and your knowledge. I like if you just win the lottery and lose it all somehow, you're just a dummy who lost all this money. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. And and then in terms of like how people view wealth and would view me if I were to come to become really wealthy, I think I would prefer to be known as being wealthy because I worked for it than being wealthy just because it fell in my lap.
0: Okay. So let's go to the, I guess the alternative to that and, Again, considering whether you want to be known by your actions or by circumstance, let's say instead of becoming rich, it was something bad that happened to you. So yeah, would you rather because you chose to go run across the street or play in traffic, get hit by a car (laughs) or (laughs) doing something totally innocuous and you just happen to get struck by lightning? Like obviously I think in most cases getting hit by a car wouldn't necessarily be as painful as getting struck by lightning, although I guess it depends. But let's just say, something bad happens to you either through your own actions that cause something bad to happen to you or just totally yeah. random something bad happens to you, which would you prefer?
1: I mean, it flip flops here. I think I want to take responsibility for the good things and I don't want to take responsibility <laughs> for the bad things. So I'd rather just have things happen. I also don't know that I'd like want to see it coming, but I don't know. I would definitely rather just have something bad. If something bad had to happen, I would want it to be accidental. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. When I was
0: coming up with these scenarios, I, I played them back in my mind and I thought the same thing. Like, if it was something good happening to me and I was being remembered for a good thing, like, obviously I want to be known for having worked for that or yeah. deserving that fame and credit. But if it was something bad, like, I don't want to be remembered. Even if I, I guess the option I was going to go with originally was I don't know, nobody wants to be remembered as a bad person becoming infamous. which might be the conversation that we have (laughs) with some stuff in this episode. So like, I don't think either of us are headed down that road, but I I still think if you were remembered poorly in history, you wouldn't want to be infamous. You would want it to be something that just, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) Right. So on that note, we are going to transition into our sort of topic for today. And as you can kind of tell through the episode title, we're going to be talking about the civil war. And I feel that we've kind of, hinted at the civil war in some past episodes i mean going back a couple weeks we talked about the reconstruction era immediately following the civil war and back maybe even a couple months now we talked about lincoln's bodyguard and how i don't know anytime you have the conversation about lincoln you have to kind of bring up the civil war because he was the president during the time of the civil war so we've never really gotten deep into i guess how the civil war started and maybe some of the battles involved in it and the civil war is a huge topic obviously so we're not going to cover the whole thing in the next hour or so but i do want to give a little bit of background to it and then we're going to kind of talk about some of at least one battle during it and kind of how it started and ended that way we have a little bit of our civil war background (laughs) yeah so the civil war took place obviously during the mid-19th century At this time in American history, the U.S. was growing rapidly. It was adding states. The economies were booming. This is really when, you know, the United States started to take some of the shape that we see it today. Obviously, there were great differences between the North and the South. The Northern economy centered around manufacturing and industry, whereas the Southern economy was centered on agriculture, which, of course, relied on slave labor. And we're very familiar that slaves are obviously a a huge part of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I will make the argument that the Civil War wasn't entirely based around slavery. I think slavery is the main topic, the main conversation. So that's not to say that like slavery wasn't the cause of the Civil War. But I think, as we'll talk about, the Civil War kind of stemmed from this bigger, overarching topic of sovereignty and the state's rights, which, of course, stems from the state's rights to have slavery.
1: <laughs> right. So I... I've read briefly about this and it's a little fuzzy in my brain and I was hoping to ask just in case you had come across it in your research, but do you know if any part of the Northern economy was based on slave labor as well? Like, was it a clear cut line where the Northern economy was slave free and the Southern economy was slave based?
0: So early
1: on throughout kind of the
0: the establishment of the United States, Northern states did have slavery. It's not Mm -hmm. to say that it only existed in the South. As their economies sort of shifted to being more around manufacturing and industry, slave use became much less in the northern states, and eventually states would set their own laws to abolish slavery. So I'm not going to say that there was no slavery in the north, but especially when we're getting to the point of the mid-19th century, when we start to get into candidates for president like Lincoln, who were abolitionists, most of the northern states had started to ban slavery legally within their states. So... Okay. As we're trending towards the Civil War, slavery really isn't much of a thing in the northern states, but it is still very much a part of the southern economy. And along that note, by the 1830s, abolitionists were fighting for the end of slavery across the United States. As more states started to be established in the West, the legality of slavery in these new territories becoming states was called into question. In 1854, Congress passed what was called the Kansas Nebraska Act which essentially legalized slavery in all new states, citing that states had sovereignty over the federal government's laws. Now, this specific act led to the creation of the Republican Party, which is still technically the same Republican Party that we have today. And it was founded on the opposition of slavery in Western territories. If you want to go into a whole conversation about whether the Republican Party still stands for these values... That might be better reserved for another episode.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think I think we already talked about it briefly on an earlier episode. But I think we did. I think
0: it might have been the uh the Ona Judge episode, George Washington's slave.
1: Yeah. We talked about I mean, how
0: some of like the the early founding fathers had slavery and kind of Oh no, we brought it up on a couple different episodes, I think. Maybe even it was far back as Lizzie Magie.
1: It might have been. Yeah, I mean, long story short, in the early 20th century, up until like World War Two, especially with FDR's New Deal, the Democratic Party kind of transferred over to the Labor Party, um, and that's when the modern, like you said, you shouldn't use the phrase "modern day." That's when I think the modern day sides that we see Republican and Democrat kind of took shape, and that's I think when the political spectrum started to kind of flip from what it was in the 1800s at least as far as i understand
0: (laughs) yeah but we should say that you know republicans in 2021 are not advocating for reestablishing slavery i don't think any major political party in america is saying that we should have slavery just that you know the the democrat party was originally pretty much established pro-slavery and their kind of ideology becoming the super liberal democrat party that we know today is not what it originally was at this time. Right. So getting back to 1850s, <laughs> <laughs> through a series of racially based events, different legal battles, and even bloody physical altercations, Southern states became convinced that their economic necessity, slavery, was in danger. And when Abraham Lincoln, an anti-slavery Republican, was elected president, this was the final straw for Southern states. <clears throat> And it's worth noting, as we've talked about on some of our past episodes, that Lincoln was opposed to slavery in future states, but he didn't intend, at least originally, to make it illegal in states where it already existed. Lincoln's kind of going policy was that keeping the union together was more important than just banning slavery altogether. Yeah. Still, within three months of his election, seven states—South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas— decided to secede from the United States. And Lincoln was a pacifist. (laughs) He made every effort (laughs) to avoid going to war. And even under threats of attack from Southern aggressors, he sent supplies to the existing military forts that were in the South, but he didn't prepare them to actually strike an attack. He wasn't aiming to go to war with the Southern states. And part of that reason is he just didn't want to legitimize this new Confederacy, although it wasn't technically the Confederate States of America yet, he didn't want to recognize them as a independent nation, essentially. He still viewed them as part of the United States and he refused to attack his own country. But on April 12th, 1861, Confederate forces attacked and captured Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. And this was really the first act of aggression, the first quote unquote battle of the Civil War. Although in history, we do call it a battle, but it's not Really, necessarily a battle because the Union, the federal troops weren't preparing to go to war at this point. Confederate forces took over what was a federal government military base in South Carolina, and Charleston kind of became the seat of the Confederacy at this point.
1: Hmm.
0: After this quote unquote battle at Fort Sumter, Lincoln now believed that the Confederacy had declared war on the Union. He called state governors to provide troops for battle and ordered blockades of southern ports. And as a response to this, four more states, Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee also seceded to join the Confederacy.
1: Do you think that Lincoln was right to interpret their attack as a declaration of war? Like, I mean, it's, I don't know what the rules are for formally declaring war, (laughs) but. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, it's still the same where the president cannot technically declare war, but he at this point asked Congress to declare war and. I don't know. I mean, he can he could definitely view that as an act of war. Yeah. But if he's also viewing these as still part of the United States, I don't know that you would necessarily call it an act of war, maybe an act of terrorism or an insurrection, which is I think actually the term that he used. So I don't I don't maybe the article that I read in putting this together referring to it as an act of war isn't the right label for it. But ultimately it was this event that kind of convinced Lincoln it was time to, you know buckle up and prepare for war.
1: Yeah. I mean that the reason I asked that is cuz like as we saw earlier this year and last year, like sometimes the line between <laughs> protest and freedom of speech and war can be kind of blurry. Um or if you're going to consider what the the Confederate troops had done here in taking over a federal fort I, I, if it's your own citizens, I feel like it's kind of a blurry line and it isn't a formal declaration of war so like i don't know i can see kind of how lincoln might have felt pretty stuck here you know because like when when does the needle flip from rioting and insurrection to now they're our enemy kill them yeah
0: no i think that's a good point and i think maybe kind of the difference between war versus insurrection is the fact that they weren't foreigners they were american citizens technically sure. i mean i know they had claimed secession at this point but if lincoln is still viewing them as part of the union then this wouldn't necessarily be war i think it would be more yeah. of how we view an insurrection but the fact that they attacked like an established u.s military base is kind True. of what made it more of an active war that you know made lincoln decide here's here now we need to act and be prepared for battle
1: yeah Do you think there's anything he could have done differently? Lincoln could have done differently to prevent the further secession or to prevent the war? Other than, Uh, you know, just allow slavery.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the obvious answer is yes, because the preferred solution to anything is to not go to war, especially in the Mm -hmm. mind of Lincoln, who did not want to go to war. Right. But I don't know that there's necessarily anything that he could have done to prevent it because, you know, the Southern states were pretty committed to this. They were motivated. They wanted to defend their cause, which was their their sovereignty to make their own laws and to maintain slavery as part of their, their biggest economy. So I don't know. I think the Southern states might have done this regardless. I mean, they weren't necessarily provoked when they attacked Fort Sumter, although they claimed that by Lincoln sending supplies to fortify these military bases that that in itself was kind of an act of preparing for war, which is why they made the attack. Really, neither side wanted to be the first ones to strike and to start this war. But the Southern states saw, or the Confederacy, I guess, saw Lincoln sending supplies to his forts down there and they viewed that as them preparing for war and we need to strike before they attack us. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to say whether the civil war could have been prevented. I think even by saying like, if he just let slavery happen, I don't know that it would have made a difference because these states had already seceded so that they could maintain their slavery. And Lincoln, like we said, wasn't advocating for the abolition of slavery where it already existed. Sure. So like we said Lincoln is now prepared to go to battle. He expected this to be a relatively brief war, <laughs> planned to be over within 90 days. <laughs> they made political promises to kind of their their northern constituents that this skirmish would be over in within 90 days. Skirmish. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of made sense for them to think that. I mean the Union States outnumbered the Confederate States 23 to 11. The Union Mm. had a larger population. They had better manufacturing, including their weapons. They had a better railroad infrastructure, which allowed them to transport troops and supplies around. And they had the already established U.S. Army and Navy. So clearly they were more prepared for war, at least you would think, than this new budding wannabe nation that is the Confederacy. However, the southern states had a very strong military history. They were also very motivated to preserve their traditions and institutions. And like I said, it it was this overarching question of, you know, slavery is part of our economy. This is an important piece to how these states exist. But it wasn't just slavery. It was the fact that states were, the United States was established on individual states having their own sovereignty to create their own laws separate from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And if they could then take away this huge piece of their economy, which was slavery, what more could they take away from the South, from these Southern states? It would it would almost be like... It would be like if you told a Midwestern state today that they can't farm anymore. You know? Yeah. That's like basically what you were telling these Southern states is that if you take away their slave labor, they can't now function their farm, which is their chief part of their economy. So I'm not in saying this trying to justify that like slavery should have been kept around, but clearly... Right. That's, this would be a huge economic change and would be devastating to the southern states to then lose slavery. And we'll see the, kind of the after effect of the Civil War is that it was devastating to the southern states, not just in losing the battle, but having to shift from the way that they operate and the way they ran their economy prior to the war yeah. to then no longer having slave labor. So Lincoln now orders his federal troops to prepare for battle in northern Virginia in what would become known as the First Battle of Bull Run. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. This is going to be kind of the first major established battle of the Civil War. And this first battle is going to lead into today's (laughs) B-Sider. And kind of how he is uniquely intertwined within the Civil War. So we'll learn a little bit about him. Even though he is not someone who's super impressive in his own right. The Civil War will kind of dance around him. And his life is going to intersect with some of the major moments of the civil war so we'll take a quick break and then we'll get into today's b-sider a man named wilmer mclean Boop. before you inevitably skip this ad take a moment to boop the snoot of your furry history's b-side companion
1: and while you do why not just the ad play in the background odie get off the microphone Boop.
0: But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website,
1: historiesb The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start, though please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more.
0: We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go.
1: You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us.
0: That website, again, is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. Boop. All right. So the man that we're talking about today, as I kind of mentioned at the end of that first section, is a man by the name of Wilmer McLean. And while he was very involved in the Civil War, kind of in an unusual way, he really wasn't like any kind of a war hero or a leader or anyone really in any position of authority. <laughs> it was just that the Civil War kind of circled laps around him. And that'll make more sense as we go through his story. But I also just kind of view him as like a stereotypical Southern gentleman. Hmm. So he was born on May 3rd, 1814 in Alexandria, Virginia, which is very, very close to Washington, D.C., if you aren't familiar with the cities in Virginia. <laughs> I think <laughs> at the time that he was born, Alexandria was actually a part of Washington, D.C., and then was later established as part of Virginia. He was the ninth of 12 children. His parents wow. were... Dan- yeah, big family. I mean, I guess that wasn't
1: that many for this time period, but it's still yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, that's true.
0: His parents were Daniel McLean and Lucretia Hodgkinson McLean. (laughs) This was like the times now was that they would use a ton of family names. So all his brothers and sisters had like aunts and uncles names or their middle names would be their mother's maiden names or their grandmother's maiden names. So it was very confusing to read through his family history because there's a lot of overlap in their family names. His father owned and ran a very successful bakery business. He sold products through wholesale and retail grocery businesses and to sailors at the port of Alexandria. Both parents were very devout Episcopalians, but they also owned four slaves. Hmm. Again, living in Virginia in the South, kind of a product of, I mean, that economy where you lived. Unfortunately for Wilmer, both of his parents passed away before his ninth birthday.
1: So, do you know, I know we've talked in the past about, like, in our episodes about slavery, especially on a judge, the way the enslaved people were passed down uh, once, you know, their owners passed away. Do you know what happens to the four slaves that the McLeans owned after their death?
0: I didn't read that specifically, but I would venture to guess that they were probably passed down to maybe Wilmer's oldest brother, mm. since they were pretty spread out. So, by the time that he was almost nine years old his oldest brother would have been an adult and his family was wealthy so they left a significant inheritance for each of their children that they wouldn't technically be able to claim until they were of age which i think at the time was 21. so okay wilmer's got some money coming to him my guess is that the majority of the estate would have been left to his older sibling probably his oldest brother um, yeah and probably the slaves would have been included with that as such, Wilmer and his younger siblings were raised by relatives. He attended the Alexandria Academy, along with another famous student of that school by the name of Robert E. Lee. Oh. Lee, was, <laughs> yeah, Lee was seven years older than McLean, so while they probably would have attended at the same time, their overlap was pretty short and they probably didn't interact much, if at all. It's noted that he and his brothers were very well educated and that he had great penmanship. And I don't necessarily understand the significance of that, but it was mentioned so many times throughout this biography that I read about him, that he just had beautiful penmanship and that demonstrated his good education and the fact that he would have these good connections through life because he was a professional businessman with good penmanship. After completing his schooling, McLean benefited from his late father's connections to begin a career in the grocery business. At age 21, he finally received his share of his father's inheritance and bought into the Kerr and McLean grocery firm that had been started by his sister and her husband. The business had moderate success, but stalled as people began to leave Alexandria, moving out west. He also served in the local militia, which would have been required of all males ages 18 to 45. Duties in the militia would have required participating mostly in ceremonial events rather than any actual combat. But it's believed that he held the rank of Major, since most documents refer to him as Major McLean. Later in life, and this will be part of his story, of course, he did not serve in the Confederate Army, although he did help them as a civilian. He married the widow, Mrs. Virginia Beverly Who Mason, on January 19th, 1853, which connected him to two prominent families of Virginia, her family and her late husbands. Hmm. She owned what was called the Yorkshire Plantation, which was a large estate in the city of Manassas, located in Prince William County in Northern Virginia, which is also pretty close to Washington, D.C., but a little bit further west than Alexandria. Oddly, I read that it seems she had some sort of a what we would call a prenup <laughs> in place to kind of ensure that <laughs> only she and not Wilmer owned this Yorkshire plantation. Yeah. This was more likely to prevent rumors that he was marrying her for her property that she is the one who actually owned it yeah. because he wouldn't have any claim to it. It wasn't such that like she was worried he was going to take her money or something. If the marriage didn't work out, they, they had a long and happy marriage together. So it wasn't anything that that was like really concerned there. The couple did move to Yorkshire. Once they were married, they had a son and two daughters in addition to the three daughters that Virginia had from her first marriage. Yorkshire was a working farm. It's described as very reminiscent of how we picture plantation life in the antebellum South. So they had orchards, farm animals, pasture lands. McLean had built a new stone barn in 1857, and he actually did work year-round on the farm himself. Of course, he had the help of about 14 slaves that were owned by his wife when they were married. So the McLeans were slave owners.
1: Yeah, so despite not owning the farm Yet working it did did he like receive payment for that or was it just kind of like a faux ownership or a, a managing ownership since he was married to her
0: oh i may, I mean I think it would be the family farm like it, it would be yeah. as if I don't know Rita bought our house and then I moved into the house and we got married it it wasn't like he worked for her because she owned the farm okay it was gotcha. his home but yeah it, he was he was a farmer it's just the fact that his wife owned the farm before they got married. And then he kind of quit his grocery business to work on the farm year round. He did still have a lot of business connections that'll come up later on. But this was his job now was just being the farmer at Yorkshire. And of course, had a small amount of slave labor to help him on the farm. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about the first battle of Bull Run, or as it was referred to in by the southern states, the Battle of First Manassas. And this is a common thing that a lot of battles and wars even today are called different things by the two sides that fought in them um, yeah. that's something we don't think about much in american culture because we know our major wars in history are world war 1 world war 2 korea vietnam but a lot of those are not called those things by the other countries that were present for them maybe world war 1 and world war 2 today <laughs> because they were such monumental parts of history but at the time yeah. nobody referred to it as world war 1 world war 2 it was the great war or you know, World War Two was referred back to World War One as the war before this one because they were both so close together and such big things. So that's something that I, I just wanted to include to kind of clarify the fact that whether it's called the First Battle of Bull Run or the Battle of First Manassas, it's the same battle. It's just more yeah. notably known as the First Battle of Bull Run because that's what the North called it, and obviously we know that the North ended up winning the Civil War. Right. So in May of 1861, in preparation for the Battle of First Manassas, Major General Robert E. Lee placed troops at the Manassas Junction train depot, which made it a key focus of the Confederate Army. By June, Brigadier General Pierre G.T. Beauregard arrived to familiarize himself with the area and cited Wilmer McLean as an important contact for his knowledge of the Virginian countryside. By July, McLean had agreed to allow the Confederate Army to take over buildings on the Yorkshire plantation, including his fancy new barn, which was being used as a military hospital. The Army paid him $150 a month rent for a period of about seven and a half months for using Hmm. buildings on Yorkshire. Records in the National Archives suggest that McLean also sold at least one horse and potentially other livestock for use by the Confederate Army. Which kind of makes sense, because he's not going to be able to continue working the farm while the yeah. Army is occupying it and potentially setting up for battle there.
1: Was 100? I mean, $150 a month for this period seems like it was a lot of money.
0: Yeah, I didn't look up the actual you know currency inflation for this amount of money. There's some that we'll come to later that talks about how much McLean actually made. From the Confederate Army over the course of the Civil War. But it's important to keep in mind, and this is going to come up later on, that he was paid using Confederate currency. Because the Confederate States of America had a separate currency, their own currency, from what the United States had. So he's being paid a good amount of money by the Confederate Army, just in a slightly different currency than what we would have thought he'd be being paid for that time. Yeah. As battle seemed inevitable, McLean moved his wife and children out of Manassas away from potential danger. McLean is now 47 years old, so he's too old to serve in the Confederate army, and at times he would return to Yorkshire to spectate and to kind of offer his support. He was undeniably loyal to the South, and he was a Confederate sympathizer, but he just didn't actually serve in the Confederate army. On July 18th, three days before the official start of the Battle of First Manassas, Brigadier General P.G.T. Beauregard and other Confederate leaders sat down for supper at the McLean home. Soon after, a cannonball flew through the kitchen and landed in the fireplace.
1: Oh my god.
0: (laughs) This was a surprise, although not totally unexpected as both sides had now begun preparing for battle in Manassas. Jesus. Beauregard described this specific incident in his diary saying, quote, A comical effect of this artillery fight was the destruction of the dinner of myself and staff by a federal shell that fell in the fireplace of my headquarters at the McLean house. (laughs) Beauregard's chief signal officer, a man named E.P. Anderson, described it with more detail, saying, A single shell came directly through the kitchen, a large log cabin close by the house in which our headquarters servants were just dishing up a dinner they had cooked for us. Fortunately, not a soul was touched, But there was a general stampede of all the horses hitched about the yard and of a good many miscellaneous people. Among them are darkies, which I assume were slaves, but didn't find that specifically cleared out. Kind of sounds, you know, a little bit racist to call them darkies. A little bit. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Going to continue the quote now. Among them are darkies who tumbled out of the kitchen and rolled over each other, getting out of the getting out of the way. Our dinner was ruined by the mud daubing between the logs, jarred out as the shell passed through both walls, falling into the sliced-up meat and dished-up vegetables, and we went about without dinner that day.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think I just feel lucky to be alive if a cannonball came through (laughs) my house over my dinner table.
0: It's believed that this shot came from probably three or four federal or Union Army cannons that were about 1,500 yards away. These were the first shots fired in what would be this first major battle of the American Civil War. Although like we said it wasn't the first shots fired of the Civil War, but it is the first major battle and the first shots fired from it.
1: Yeah. I mean this is a pretty neat I mean all baggage all of the baggage aside, this is a neat story of like how the war began just random cannonballs. Yeah. Kind of like a house. funny
0: aside that, you know, led into what was maybe not so funny an actual Civil War battle. <laughs>
1: Do you know, were they? was the Union trying to hit the house, or was it just kind of a stray cannonball?
0: Uh, I don't know for certainty. My guess is that any building that they hit basically on the Yorkshire Plantation was probably a win, because they knew that this was being yeah. set up as sort of a, a stronghold for the Confederate Army. Probably that they shouldn't have been aiming at the barn, which was a hospital, because there are, you know rules to war rules. and you can't attack hospitals but some of the other buildings and structures on the Yorkshire plantation were just offices or encampments so they would have I guess been more fair game for targeting <laughs> yeah so let's set Wilmer McLean aside and we'll talk about the first battle bull we'll run a little bit because like I said I do want to get into kind of a little bit about the civil war and kind of why this battle was important but kind of led into the overall you know, bad side of the Civil War. So the first battle of Bull Run, or as we mentioned, the Battle of First Manassas, was the first full-scale battle of the Civil War following Lincoln's official war declaration. A 90-day volunteer army was established and sent to capture the Virginian capital in Richmond. They were met by General Beauregard and Confederate forces near the Bull Run Creek in Manassas, which is where the, the battle gets its name. This battle involved 60,680 troops, where the Confederates actually outnumbered the Union Army by almost 4,000. Important to note, though, that both sides were very inexperienced. These weren't trained soldiers. These were volunteer troops. Yeah. At the start of the battle, Union troops advanced on the Confederate Army. But after a failed surprise attack by the Union Army, they struggled to reorganize. In this time, the Confederates were able to bring in reinforcements and launch a counterattack. Union troops withdrew under panic and retreated which resulted in a surprising victory for the Confederate Army. And this is a very quick way to go through what actually happened in the battle. I just wanted to make sure that we touched on it, but we don't need to go into all the details of how they flanked and what specifically happened. it ended up being kind of a very bloody battle, probably a lot worse than what they would have expected because the Union Army wasn't expecting such a pushback from the Confederate. They didn't expect them to be so well manned. And I don't mean like well in that they were skillful fighters, just that they had so many troops and were able to bring in reinforcements quickly. Like we said, none of these guys were prepared to fight. They didn't have great training. They (laughs) didn't have good
1: weapons. (laughs) They were militia. Um,
0: Right. So at the end of the battle, the Union Army suffered over 2,800 casualties. The Confederates lost about a little less than 2,000. This battle proved to both sides that this would be a much longer and bloodier war than expected. Suddenly, Lincoln's plan for being over in 90 days was no longer the case. And neither side was prepared to have this type of extended war. So they knew it was going to be a rough couple years, that this was literally going to be a civil war, not just a quick engagement. Alright, so let's get back to our guy Wilmer McLean and what he was doing for the rest of the Civil War. (laughs) McLean's wife and children never returned to Yorkshire, at least during the Civil War. Wilmer himself returned only several times to procure food and medical supplies for the Confederate Army And, of course, to collect rent payments and check on his property. His biggest contribution during the Civil War centered around his brokering sugar for use by the Confederates. Just a reminder that he was a grocer and had a lot of connections in the business, so he knew the importance of sugar. And if we're going to talk about sugar, it has a very long, complicated history in America, which is based in slavery. I don't necessarily want to get into all of that, because that itself is a whole other conversation. But sugar was... Essentially being produced mostly in the Caribbean at this time. Okay. And then sugar plantations began to sprout up specifically in Louisiana and a few in Texas, which is really when slave labor became such an important part of producing sugar to the point where Louisiana was producing almost 25% of the world's consumption of sugar. Wow. Yeah.
1: So that's wild.
0: I mean, if not for slavery, America wouldn't have been such a big producer of sugar and a huge export for the South. So that's why like if you want to get into the history of sugar in America like slavery is a big big part of that and why not that this has a ton to do with Wilmer McLean but why it was important to the South to maintain this type of economic system.
1: Right so I was going to ask something like this earlier but I think this is a, a good place to ask it in maybe a different way but Given that Louis like a state like Louisiana was producing twenty-five percent of the world's supply of sugar, this commodity that probably everybody used, would the Confederate idea that they were defending their way of life and their economy and would be, you know, completely ruined without slavery, would that be kind of akin to like I don't know, Silicon Valley complaining if they, you know, the technology they produce got taxed to a point where they made less. Like, was it, was it really so drastic that without slavery they would be destitute or was it more like, Oh, we just won't be this giant powerhouse anymore.
0: Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a hard question to answer without doing a lot more extensive research on it. Sure. I think, I mean, if you're talking about like Silicon Valley being taxed heavily, like clearly that would be a huge shock to their business model. And they would fight it tooth and nail to prevent that from happening. Yeah, But taxing a product is a much like sure. easier moral stance than enslaving humans. <laughs> well, no, I'm,
1: totally. To
0: make this point, I'm definitely not going to equate what I'm about to say to slavery either. But think about the American economy just within the last six to eight months, the labor shortage that we've been going through. You and I are familiar with the restaurant industry and the fact that the restaurant industry is dying for employees right now like mm-hmm. you can't go to a restaurant and well in most cases you can't go to a restaurant and every table's sat or you're able to get food quickly and that's not even talking about the operations of you know the supply chain of food coming in there's just right. not servers there's not cooks there's aren't people to work and these are people who are being paid to work so if you take the the workers out of the restaurant industry you know restaurants can't function and it's not like an yeah. easy labor supply to refill if they're just not there. So you equate that to agriculture in the south at this time and if you took away their entire labor force, which was slavery, yeah. These these plantations, these producers of sugar or cotton or whatever the product was that was coming out of these southern plantations, they couldn't have happened because there wasn't if you eliminated slavery there wasn't a labor force to produce these items it would have been a shock to not just the southern economy but probably the global economy because of how much was being produced in the south yeah that's not a justification for slavery (laughs) obviously we survived beyond the civil war (laughs) right but that also explains like in the reconstruction era why a lot of these now freed slaves went back to the plantations to work because they still needed to operate and they still needed people to produce these crops Mm mm-hmm so going back to Wilmer McLean, like I said, he used his connections as a grocer to to be able to procure the sugar, and that was kind of his big job during the, the Civil War, that he was actually able to transport it through some of the, the Union blockades and then transport it to the Confederate Army. So the Confederate cool. Army not being able to get through these southern ports once they were blocked off by Union troops, weren't able to get certain commodities and provisions like sugar. And Wilmer, because he was acting as a grocer or a business person and not as a member of the Confederate Army, was able to get through some of these Union blockades, which is why he was important, had an important job to the Confederate Uh, Army.
1: Okay. Was, I mean, I know we just had this whole conversation about sugar, but was sugar like a super necessary provision for an army? I mean. I tried to look that up
0: and I don't know it if there's like super specific reasons like why sugar was important other than just the fact that it was a staple part of their their food provisions and it was used by both armies heavily I don't know if it had any use beyond that but it it is kind of like a indicator of how short food supplies were for both armies especially the confederates once the northern states or the union army started to block off these southern ports like food was a huge problem for both both armies but especially the confederacy which has had a lot to do with why you know the confederate states would eventually surrender
1: the uh the parameters of it probably would have been a little bit different just circumstantially but it kind of reminds me of our champagne episode where like the the germans used champagne and french wine to supply their their army and i almost wonder if the confederacy you know maybe thought of that Or if they had thought of it, if things had been different, you know, their control of so much of the world's supply of sugar could have been like a bargaining chip, kind of the way French wine was for the French.
0: I think it could have been, but I think just the fact that the Union Army started to control these ports made it very difficult to do that. Like, if you read back, like going back to the the sugar conversation, production in plantations dropped significantly during the Civil War. Hmm both because manpower was needed for the armies, but also just because they weren't able to export as much and they just, the focuses were on the ongoing war and not on, you know, agricultural production. Farming. Anyway, <laughs> going back into Wilmer, it's, it's estimated that he was for his services, both sugar and other procurements, was paid over $40,000 in Confederate currency for all of his work during the war. Dang. I tried to look up the the currency conversion on that. And obviously, this isn't going to be exact because it was Confederate currency compared to American dollars at the day. But yeah. I think it's estimated that he made pretty close to, I think it was just under about $900,000 in today's money. Wow. So that's quite a bit of money for, what is it, four or five years that he's doing these things. Actually, probably less, as you'll see as we get into the story. It's really only maybe one or two years that he was actively working for <laughs> the Confederate yeah. Army. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's quite a sum to be paid for being a civilian. That, that was the big point of this, was that he was a civilian. He was not a member of the Confederate Army. He was just kind of a supporter in that way. Yeah. So by 1863, a few things became apparent to Wilmer McLean. The first of which was that his wife was again pregnant. <laughs> and all his work had been keeping him away from his family for long periods of time. And as the war dragged on, no one really knew how long it would last or what the outcome would be. But by the fall, after the Confederate Army's defeat at Gettysburg it became a lot more clear that the battles in Northern Virginia would soon take a much more bloody turn. McLean began to greatly reduce his involvement with the Confederate army, and he moved his family to the small village of Appomattox Courthouse in South Central Virginia. Here McLean operated a small farm and continued his business of trading commodities. They lived a relatively peaceful life in Appomattox for nearly two years as the war continued. In the spring of 1865, it was not uncommon to see Confederate soldiers and defectors passing through Appomattox, retreating, or defeated. Hmm. Locals began to sense that the war was nearing an inevitable surrender as the Union Army began advancing south and the Confederate Army was retreating. Both armies had begun to run low on food and supplies, and the Confederates were still vastly outmanned, unarmed, and had lost several critical battles. So on the morning of April 9th, General Lee sent his military secretary, a man named Colonel Charles Marshall, into the village of Appomattox Courthouse to find a place where he might meet with General Ulysses Grant of the Union Army. Now, according to Marshall, the first white citizen that he encountered was Wilmer McLean. (laughs) McLean showed him to an unoccupied house, which was dilapidated with no furniture. But when Marshall decided that this would be unsuitable, McLean, probably very reluctantly, offered his own home. So, General Lee arrived at Wilmer McLean's home around 1 p.m. that afternoon, and General Grant arrived about a half hour later. The two men with limited staff met in McLean's parlor, where they spoke for about 25 minutes and negotiated the surrender of the Confederate army. By this point, both generals were very eager to end the war. Lee was old and frail and nearly starved himself. His condition was not widely reported because he hoped to maintain strong appearances for the remaining Confederate soldiers who were similarly in very poor health. Yeah. So actually, a lot of people don't realize how bad of shape Lee was in himself. Like He was ready to end the war, even to the point of surrendering his army. Although, you know, it it made him very sick and upset to do so. He wasn't, he was a military general. He wasn't really someone who would, want to surrender, short of the fact that he was near death himself. Grant, however, knew that his own army's supplies were running low, and any longer pursuit of the Confederates would have required them to back off until they could transport food and other necessities to their front lines.
1: That's interesting, like, how closely matched the two sides were and how fragile the, quote, tides of war are, you know, like, I mean, I think it might have been still true if Grant had been slower about achieving surrender from the confederacy that they would have eventually done so but it it is kind of interesting like to consider how fickle everything is
0: yeah and honestly if you think about it like if the confederates had you know a little bit more weapons or better training how different the shape of america could be because the union army wasn't prepared either they were kind of fortunate that they were able to advance (laughs) on the confederates to the point where they were near death and starvation. Like, if the Union hadn't, you know, shut down a lot of these ports and set up blockades that the s- South couldn't get the supplies that they needed, America could look very different today. Yeah. During this meeting, McLean was described as being cordial, but noticeably irritated at his home being once again taken over <laughs> for military purposes. Oh, man. Following the surrender, the McLean home became a souvenir auction the table upon which the surrender papers were signed was purchased for $20 in gold coins by Union Major General P.H. Sheridan.
1: I mean, I already asked about the money, but do you know how much this would have been? Was I assume uh, this was in American dollars, not Confederate dollars.
0: Well, this was actually in gold coins which
1: Oh, you, you said know, gold coins. American currency kind of
0: went back and forth between gold like actual gold and Paper currency for a while. Yeah. Um, But it would have been worth something, but probably if I had to guess, McLean would have preferred to just keep his furniture. (laughs) Sure. The chairs that the general sat in were also purchased from McLean, along with other furnishings in the room. And these tables and chairs are now part of collections in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, as well as the Chicago History Museum. Other soldiers began taking things from the home as souvenirs of the event. And honestly, Almost every item from the home, inside and out, was purchased or stolen, including McLean's fence posts, bricks from the home's (laughs) foundation, and even his daughter's rag doll. Jesus. (laughs) The McLean family denied receiving any kind of financial compensation for these quote-unquote souvenirs, and they accused union officers of basically plundering the home and taking whatever they wanted.
1: But I feel like this is probably partially true, if not all the way (laughs) true.
0: I'm sure he didn't, you know, get a lot of compensation for what was his <laughs> i think everyone just kind of recognized the historic significance of this event of the confederate surrender so they wanted to take some kind of memento either for value or just for memory's sake and a lot of yeah. these did end up in museums that you can actually go see today but it kind of sucks for uh <laughs> the mclean family
1: yeah it stinks they just you know i feel like robert e lee kind of gave him not, not the cold shoulder but gave him a bad deal Here, I feel like he should have been promised ownership of all the souvenirs so that he could later sell them.
0: I think Robert E. Lee had more important concerns than poor old Wilmer McLean. McLean. (laughs) It's important to note for, you know, contextual sake that McLean's ironic intersections with history here were neither the first shots fired nor the final surrender of the Civil War. The Battle of First Manassas was simply the first major battle of the war, and it showed that the Confederate Army would not simply roll over and cave to the Union, And likewise, President Andrew Johnson did not declare an official end to the war until May 9th, 1865, a month after the conference between Grant and Lee, and the fighting didn't fully cease until November. Word spread a lot more slowly than than it does today. Yeah. Still, these two events can be recognized as the beginning and end of the fiercest battles of the Civil War. Thus, it is often stated that for Wilmer McLean, the war started in his kitchen and ended in his parlor. (laughs)
1: That is really interesting and kind of like, I don't know, coincidental. I mean, I guess when you're living in mid-Virginia at this time, you're, like you said, right place or wrong place, wrong time.
0: Well, that's where I kind of thought about, yeah, our our conversation at the beginning of this episode is that he really was kind of just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Especially in Appomattox, where he was just twice walking <laughs> through town and someone, he was the first white person that they saw and were like, hey, find us a place. Yeah. <laughs> And sort of the fact that he's remembered for circumstance, not for anything that he did. You know, like, yeah. what are the odds that this one man is involved, not even once, let alone twice at the start right. and the end of the war? And he didn't, I mean, while he was supporting the Confederate Army, he didn't really contribute anything to the actual war, but he's remembered for being in, around both ends of it. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk, I guess, a little bit about the end of. Warren McLean's life here, and then uh, what happened to him after the war, and then we can maybe talk about how we view him in today's history lens. Though McLean was paid well for his services by the Confederacy, his payment was in, as I mentioned, Confederate dollars. Once the Confederate states had been dissolved, their currency was essentially worthless. He could no longer afford to keep their home in Appomattox, so they returned to Manassas in 1867. But likewise, the farmland that they owned was also essentially worthless.
1: Do you know why it was worthless? Was this due to like the war destroying the land, lack of slave labor to work it, or for other reasons?
0: I think a lot of it has to do with it being destroyed because his farm was essentially a battlefield. Yeah. Um, they also just didn't have a lot of possessions, and it wasn't even specifically his farmland. Most farmland in the South at this time significantly decreased in value. I think I read mm-hmm. somewhere that an acre which could have sold for 150 dollars like an acre of land was sold for 150 dollars prior to the war immediately following the war you could sell the same acre for about two dollars two dollars and fifty cents so literally the value of their land dropped to one to two percent of what it would have been prior to the war and that was for most farmland in the south that wasn't specifically to wilmer mclean thanks in part to some connections he made through his hosting the surrender conference McLean was able to land a job with the IRS where he worked from 1873 through 1876 while Grant was actually president. This led him to return to Alexandria, Virginia, where he died on June 5th, 1882. In 1965, an author by the name of Dorothy Trubetskoy described Wilmer McLean as, quote, personally obscure in the world's history, but that his unusual connection to the Civil War has guaranteed his name peculiar." Immortality.
1: Hmm. Well, I mean, we're sitting here in twenty twenty one talking about it, so <laughs> And that's she kind was of correct.
0: Why I thought he was a good B setter. I mean, we we talk about these people who've yeah. made great contributions to history but are just left off the history books. This guy is maybe the opposite of that. He made almost no contribution to history aside from the <laughs> fact that he owns pretty important properties. <laughs> <laughs> but he is remembered for owning those important properties. <laughs> right. I just want to wrap up, I guess, his sort of story by saying what happened to his house that he owned in Appomattox. Obviously, they moved out of it because he couldn't afford it. But eventually, the house was purchased for its historical value in 1891. And investors who bought the house had plans to disassemble it and move it to Washington, D.C. to open a Civil War museum. Unfortunately, shortly after they disassembled it, they ran out of money. and The house sat in basically a pile of boards and bricks for over 50 years. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the National Park Service stepped in to reconstruct the house, partially made out of its own original materials, and it was open to the public as part of an Appomattox Courthouse historical site uh, in April 1949, and it was added to the National Register of Historic Places on October 15th, 1966.
1: So the house is still there? Yeah, you could
0: go visit <laughs> it if you really wanted to.
1: <laughs> I should know that, because I probably did visit it. I I went to... <laughs> the Appomattox Courthouse Battlefield with my dad a while ago like in eighth grade I just don't remember if it was there or not I probably (laughs) probably was
0: what a weird connection that you have to one of our (laughs) b-siders
1: eighth grade civil war road trip
0: (laughs) so do you think like we talk about this guy who wasn't a confederate soldier Didn't really have a lot to do with the actual Civil War, except for the fact that major moments happened on his property twice. Yeah. Do we view him through a good lens in history? I mean, we talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time or being remembered for something that you did versus your circumstance. And, like, he, while he did procure necessary provisions for the Confederate Army and he donated his property or sold his property, rented his property to the (laughs) Confederate Army and sold some possessions to them do we view him in a bad lens for being a confederate sympathizer or is he just kind of a neutral nobody in history because he didn't do much aside from just being in the wrong place at the wrong time?
1: Yeah. I, in my opinion, I think a a happy medium between both of those, like, I guess it depends on what it takes to make somebody a bad person in history. But I mean, across the board, I think anybody who helped or can, you know, was sympathetic to the Confederate cause had some moral issues to work out as far as depending on slavery in the first place so heavily for their economy. But that set aside, given that the entire South was that way and you kind of have to view him through a lens relative to his peers, I don't know that we can say he's like a bad, bad person or the bad person in the, you know, civil war because there were certainly much worse actors. Um, So I think he's, you know, other than his, you know, like we said earlier, his circumstantial existence in the Confederate South, I don't know that I would say he's a bad person. He seems just, like you said, a neutral, accidental historic figure.
0: Yeah. Well, that's kind of what my thought was that, do we consider anyone who had any connection to the Confederacy inherently bad? And the moral standpoint is probably yes, because we know what the Confederacy stood for. Right. But I don't know. I mean, that's still going along with the fact that if if you're saying that, then living in that time period, he could not have made a living without slavery because he was a farmer. And that was right. just how how agriculture worked in that time period. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm not trying to say he's a good person because he did aid the Confederacy and we don't you know, look back very fondly on that through a historical lens. So I do think he is kind of just in that like neutral because he is known for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, Yeah. But also, you know, we're not giving him the benefit of the doubt because he was a Confederate supporter.
1: Right. I mean, that's as you're talking, I'm thinking like if I was a farmer in the Confederate South and like I personally decided For myself that slavery was morally bad and that I was evil for having owned slaves and used slave labor and decided to stop, like how I'd have to move, right? Like I couldn't operate a farm now and pay my, you know, employees because all of my products are now going to cost so much that nobody will buy from me. So you almost would have to like completely change your career you would probably have to uproot your whole family and move right and to that, being that said, like he,
0: he was a slave owner
1: right so like i, I as much as i don't want to say like it is morally wrong we have we've established that
0: yeah we're not but, trying to give him too much credit but it i mean it was kind of like
1: what well, was an institutional thing it was a nationwide problem not right. wilmer mclean or anybody else's individual job to necessarily stop it I I don't I guess I don't know where to (laughs) I I don't know like
0: part of me wants to say it was the times because it was the times but also there was plenty of abolitionists at the time so I think it's just it's your same point that if if he were to have this moral objection to slavery he would have had to move he would have had to quit being a farmer and he could have gone to a northern state and been a grocer there but that's just people didn't get up and move like that then like his family was established in Virginia so clearly he was staying there and when Virginia decided to secede he seceded along with them
1: Yeah. All right. You think you're ready for your Civil War quiz?
0: (laughs) I think I'm gonna have to rely heavily on just whatever base knowledge of the Civil War that I have because
1: I don't think the questions are too hard. I think you'll be fine to be perfectly honest. It was kind of hard to find appropriately difficult questions because they were either so obscure that they were, pun intended, trivial. Like, you know, silly things that you would just have to randomly guess or so obvious that I knew you'd get them. So (laughs) (laughs) we'll see if you get them. All right. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. As many of our listeners know, we like to end every episode with a short quiz for our host to see what he might have learned or already knew about the, today's topic, and also to give our listeners a chance to test their own knowledge, um, to see what they might know. Uh, today's quiz was hard to hard to put together. Uh, you were quite <laughs> thorough in McLean's life, and the Civil War is kind of a not super well done, but at least well-known enough event that it's kind of like asking trivia questions about world war two they're like either really obvious and easy or too hard
0: <laughs> yeah that's what
1: i mean we talked about this
0: before we started recording i thought this would be a quick topic because yeah you know his story is really around the two events and there's not that much great about his life like worth talking about for an hour aside from those two events but you know, if you're going to talk about the beginning and the end to the Civil War, you have to cover the Civil War. And it was just like, I went from thinking this was going to be a quick episode that I could research super quickly and be ready to go to like, holy crap, I'm looking into all these factors surrounding the Civil War. (laughs) And now we have a lot to talk about. So hopefully just through that research, I'll be able to get some of these. But I mean, I don't really know what to expect. (laughs)
1: Think you'll do okay. One is one is pretty easy, but I'm gonna start with the the slightly more difficult one, I suppose. Um, so we talked briefly about the fact that this was kind of an expanding time in American history, and there was a lot of industrialization, and with that comes a lot of new technology. So there were a number of new technologies that were specifically used by the U.S. first, by both the Confederacy and the Union Army first in the civil war how many of those can you name i have seven here oh geez and they're not all necessarily weapons just pieces of technology that were used widely and influential in the civil war
0: well one that i think maybe didn't originate in the civil war but i know the civil war made it a big deal and this is going to probably come up on a future episode of history's (laughs) b-side would be the gatling gun
1: yep that is one (laughs) of them
0: yeah, that uh, there's a funny story about that, but maybe I'll save that for my future episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, another one that I know I think was first tested in the Civil War was submarines. Yep. That one, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole story about the guy who tried to invent the submarine, like unintentionally killed a whole bunch of people while testing it because <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> they kept drowning. <laughs> <laughs> oh. which is not funny but like, oh no <laughs> uh yeah
1: <laughs> yikes um that's two
0: there has to be something about trains because i think this is the first battle where soldiers were or, i don't know first battle first war where like troops were actually transported to the battle sites by train
1: yeah that's three
0: is that a specific thing, or is that just...
1: Use I mean, d- uh, the list I'm going off of just says railroads and trains as a general technology.
0: Uh, that might be all I get. I don't know if there's anything else that I can think so
1: of. So the other ones are kind of obscure, except for one that I thought you might get, which is ironclad warships. I mean, you kind of hit it with submarines, um, but the this was the first war in which they were using iron ships instead of wooden ships. And it pretty much made the wooden warship a thing of the past and obsolete because of the strength of these ironclad warships um, that were used by both sides.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, The others were naval mines and torpedoes, obviously with the submarine use and (laughs) the ironclad warships, naval mines and torpedoes began to be used. Um, And then another one that is a weapon before we get to the two that weren't so much weapons was something called the mini bullet, uh, which essentially extended the range and accuracy of guns and also fired at a faster rate and hit targets harder. So it was really destructive. It was one of the reasons why there were so many casualties and so many really bloody injuries, um, such as amputations, because this bullet was far more damaging than those previously used and they also developed at the same time long-range weapons that had grooves in them causing the bullets to spin which increased the range from you know a couple hundred feet all the way to almost a thousand feet so you could wow. shoot uh, you could shoot and kill a target from three times the distance because of these two technologies put together and then the other the two are c2 with yeah how it would be spinning
0: would be i, I would think beneficial to at least shooting straight
1: yeah, and then the other two, one was the telegraph, fairly, obs- not not obscure, oh. but kind of <laughs> something you wouldn't think of, but it's kind of obvious, uh, and then the one I found most interesting was aerial reconnaissance, the balloon corps was established by President Lincoln <laughs> early on in the war, and they used balloons to float up in the air and collect intelligence about
0: enemy troops. Like hot troops. air balloons, I assume?
1: Y- yeah.
0: Can you imagine the early Air Force was just hot Hot air air balloons? (laughs) 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 Yeah. Until they got a little bit too high and they turned into Space Force?
1: (laughs) I mean, I just think it sounds terrifying to be floating above an army with weapons. I know they couldn't fire that far, but like...
0: They don't move that fast.
1: Right, you can't escape, really. You have to use the winds (laughs) to get away. You might blow further into the south, into enemy territory. Like, who knows?
0: Ironclad bottom to the basket that you're standing in. <laughs> right?
1: I don't know if I'd want to be in that. All right, so I feel like you got... I'm giving
0: myself partial credit.
1: Yeah, I thought it would lead to an interesting discussion, and you should have partial credit. credit. You got at least half of them, right? Ish. <laughs> the second question is one I think will be a little bit easier to infer the answer to. Um, the Civil War, as we know, is one of the bloodiest wars that was fought by the united states so i have a list here of 11 of the biggest most deadly wars in american history can you name them in order or how many of them can you name in order
0: these are wars and not specific battles of the civil war
1: wars in american history oh jeez. of which the civil war is one of them of course
0: well the civil war i know is the like deadliest war Mm -hmm. fought on american soil so i don't know if it's the deadliest in history but i would assume it is since every casualty would have been an american (laughs) unless i guess you don't count slaves that fought as american Mm -hmm. casualties but they should be
1: the, the civil war was the deadliest as far as american citizen loss american soldier loss
0: i would have to think that the war of 1812 is up there
1: The War of 1812 is 7th.
0: Oh, so barely on there.
1: You also have to consider the size of armies at this time and how many people there were in the world. Yeah, how
0: many is on your list? I can't remember.
1: I have 11. I'll give you credit if you name the top four.
0: (laughs) Uh, I mean, Vietnam?
1: Vietnam is 4th.
0: Probably whatever we're calling this... Twenty year war we just got out of in Afghanistan, I would think.
1: That is actually ninth. Okay. Incredibly.
0: Um I mean I'm I I don't think There's that we two had...
1: huge ones. The the two biggest ones you'd go to think of are second and third.
0: World War One and World War Two? Mm hmm. I guess I don't really think of us I, I know we were like in active combat for them, but both of those wars we kinda came in at the end, and I don't really think of us having Lost that many soldiers in it, but I guess that's yeah. probably unfair of me to to think that. It just in my mind would have been a lot worse for the European countries that were in it very early on. And
1: it probably was. I don't know the numbers uh, overall, but so just for comparison's sake, uh, the Civil War led to six hundred twenty thousand uh, deaths of American soldiers. World War II was four hundred five thousand. World War One was 116,000. Vietnam was 58,000, and Korea was 36,000, which is the fifth. After that, we've got the Revolutionary War, 1812, Mexican War, Iraq, Spanish American War, and the Gulf War. In wow. Order. So
0: I guess that's maybe just a bad skewed version of history that I would have thought World War Two. I mean, I, I figured it was on your list. I just didn't expect it to be. Yeah. Up maybe that high. that high, because I mean we really did kind of just come in at the end of it. That was when we were in Germany taking a tour that talked about World War One and World War Two, the tour guide we were I think one of the only Americans in the group or two of the only Americans in the group. I think there was maybe three or four Americans in the group of maybe a dozen, but he he specifically looked at me and was like, "You know, Americans like to take credit for their." their victories in World War One and World War Two, but they kind of just swooped in at the end when it was pretty much over. It's like, yeah, that's kind of how we're taught history in America is that we're, we're the grand heroes.
1: Yeah, we watched the fight until everybody was tired and then came in and just <laughs> kicked the shit out of everybody. <laughs> Although I feel like that's less true uh, in the Pacific theater with Japan. I don't know for a fact that we fought the japanese longer but i i feel like we were one of the primary
0: yeah well that's a whole responsible other for we probably should do an episode about you know the the pacific side of world war ii at some yeah. point because that is a interesting backstory that is no way really connected to <laughs> what happened in europe at the same time
1: right and for your last question we have a a war question but also a mclean question so you mentioned that he served in a local militia and achieved the rank of major. During what war, though he didn't actually see battle, what war did he serve during?
0: Uh, I can't even think what was happening like early on in his life. So I don't really know. I mean,
1: know. A, a hint I will give you is that it was none of the ones we just mentioned in the last question. <laughs> is a pretty, I mean... So, relatively obscure war i don't know it's so the mexican-american war
0: oh okay which that was <laughs> on your list know. wasn't it
1: uh, i don't think maybe it was, it was like number 11 it, or something oh my god it was i'm so sorry my hint was bullshit <laughs> oh that's terrible shit i'm so sorry
0: that's okay this was an extensive quiz. This
1: was—I told you these questions were so hard to find. <laughs> oh my goodness! I had so many like ideas for questions, and then I'd find them, and they were either in the episode or so obvious. Like one that I was gonna go with, but felt like was a l- little bit too easy was who was the president of the Confederacy. But I know it. Do His you? I mean, was... say it.
0: <laughs> I'm drawing a blank right now. His name was Johnson, <laughs> oh, no. wasn't it? jefferson jefferson oh my gosh yeah jefferson i'm uh, Davis. johnson was the union president or Amer- united states president following lincoln of course yeah um yeah jefferson
1: oh maybe i should have put that in there <laughs>
0: i know i'm just dumb apparently this is a long episode for me i don't i feel like my episode it is not really go this long so yeah <laughs> my brain is fried yeah Did a lot of research that. for this one <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you guys found this episode super interesting. Obviously, it's just kind of a funny story about a guy who was around for the Civil War, even though he wasn't you know, really one of the major contributors. But I don't know. The Civil War is a super interesting part of American history, obviously. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have more stories around it. I didn't even mention that you know, Stonewall Jackson, who's one of the most famous Confederate generals. Um, yeah. Obviously he's he wouldn't be a B sider, he'd probably be more on the A side, but he got his nickname during the Battle of Bull Run. Like that's where oh. he got the nickname Stonewall. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot in the Civil War and we'll probably have to do a couple episodes around people that were more actively engaged in it, I think. But keep listening to History's B side and you'll hear some of those stories.
1: Yeah. As always, we really appreciate your support and listening to us tell our historical stories every week. We enjoy putting this together for you and hope you enjoy listening. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to reach out, feel free to hit us up at historiesbside at gmail.com or find us on social media.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Histories B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter,
1: and Instagram at Histories B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcasts at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or
0: making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there,
1: check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Molino and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.